Let's bow in prayer, shall we? Father, it's with great joy that we've gathered here this morning. Uh, what a great practice. What, a, what wisdom in your word, setting the precedent in the early church that on the first day of the week we would gather, that we would look around and we would see that we have brothers and sisters in Christ walking this journey with us, that we would be able to share our burdens, to pray together, to join our voices and remind ourselves of some of the basic principles of the Christian life, even in our singing. And then this time where we sit quietly and take our Bibles and we let your Holy Spirit just wash over us, allowing the Word to cleanse us, to convict us, and to challenge us. And Father, we just pray that you would do your work in us through your Word today. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. I have brought with me to the pulpit today uh, some of my Bibles. Um, I'm sure that I'm not unusual in that I have a whole shelf full of Bibles. Americans are blessed that way. I have uh, this little old New Schofield Reference Bible that I got when I was in high school, and it's been recovered with a piece of uh, naugahyde or something. It's kind of cheap. I don't know why I did that. Uh, it needed a new cover. This was my Bible that I carried in Bible College from high school through five years of uh, classes at Appalachian Bible College, and it sits on the shelf. I rarely use it. Once in a while, it's fun to look at it and to be reminded of some of the things I've underlined or written there. I have uh, a Bible that is uh, kind of neat to have on the shelf, and it's a little bit unusual. This is a a Bible from East Africa, Southeast Africa, and Malawi, and it's, I can't read a word of it, it's Chichuan. Uh, they speak Chichua, and it's always so fun to hear them worship and to preach and to pray together and to hear them read God's Word, and they are so blessed when you give them a copy of God's Word, and if they're able to have their own copy, they're just filled with joy. By the way, Love and Yohani are going to be here, those are our pastors in Africa, Malawi, they're going to be here uh, in uh, September, October, in that range. I haven't heard the final dates. They're both traveling together, father and son, and we will anticipate with great joy uh, reuniting with them and having them here. I have another Bible that means a lot to me. This is um, my old 1984 NIV, which I used for many years in youth ministry, and I have uh, pictures and things taped in the front. And one thing I like about this Bible is that through the years, as I carried it to pastor's conferences, I had pastors sign it. And I've got, you know, John MacArthur's there and Tony Evans and, and Stephen Olford and E.V. Hill signed it and, and um, John Whitcomb and, and Erwin Lutzer. And I'm just thankful for these guys, Chuck Swindoll. And it's not that uh, I worship these guys at all. I just thought it would be kind of neat to do um, someday for maybe my grandkids. Some of these names are going to hang around a while, and they might think it's neat to have a Bible uh, that was signed. And by the way, Matt, taped in the front of this Bible from 1998 is a picture of you with your arm around your brother, Jim Sabalski, two rows in front of you, and uh, with Joe Stoll, president of Moody Bible Institute, and a couple of us together. What a great trip that was. And those were days when God was stirring Matt's heart through the preaching of the Word to enter the ministry. Such a special Bible. I have another one um, that means a lot to me. I don't open it very often. This is a Bible that I can remember looking at when I was a young boy in my father's pastor's study. The pages are very um, easy to tear, and it's very fragile. And this is a Bible that my father carried following World War II uh, to Moody Bible Institute and used in his studies. It's an old Schofield reference Bible that, uh, in King James that my father used throughout his 
studies at the Moody Bible Institute and then his early years of pastoral ministry. Somewhere along the line, and I can remember as a very young boy, um, you know, prowling around his study and always enjoying opening this Bible to where someone had uh, taken calligraphy um, and freehanded with calligraphy, beautifully put Eugene Marceau in there, and I was always fascinated by that. I have some of his old sermon notes there. Very special to me. Do you have special Bibles? I'm sure you do. Maybe you have a Bible of a grandparent, someone that meant so much to you. I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 today, and Jesus is going to talk about his Bible. Uh, Jesus is going to talk about the Word of God and how special it is. Um, And in fact, today for our message, as we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, we are going to cover verses 17 through 20, and really 20 is going to end up being left for next week. Um, it, it actually sets itself up very well as an introduction to the next section, which we will glance at this week. But in chapter 5, we have the Sermon on the Mount. The Lord has been teaching, and remember we have this gathering crowd of disciples around Him, and uh, his clo- those closest to Him no doubt were seated closest, He's teaching them. He's sharing his heart with them. And then there uh, maybe even in a sense of concentric circles, if you picture it in your mind, uh, the closer in you were, the closer they were probably to the Lord in discipleship and following him. And then farther out, those who were curious and uh, other disciples, a massive crowd had assembled. And then even on the outside of the, of the group, no doubt, farther out, looking over the heads of the curious and of the committed were the caustic uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, listening, ever critical of our Lord, ever pointing out, by the way, was Jesus a Pharisee or a Sadducee? Was Jesus part of the religious ruling class? Was he part of the identifiable teachers of Israel that fell into the category of being recognized as an expert in the law, as a Pharisee or a Sadducee? The answer is No. The answer is no. In fact, Jesus was just a country carpenter, wasn't he? He was just a country boy. And don't you know that that's got to be part of the reason that these Pharisees, that it was just nails on a chalkboard when this Jesus sits down, draws such a great crowd. They couldn't draw such crowds. And now you're going to see in our message today that as he continues on in this Sermon on the Mount, he's challenged us to be salt and light. He's sharing his heart, sharing what it means to be a true follower of Christ, to live in the kingdom of Christ, that enveloping canopy of the ownership of God on our lives, that as you live in that kingdom, this is what it looks like. The passage that we're going to study today is actually a little bit of a bridge section And Jesus is going to talk about his Bible. He's going to call it the law and the the prophets. The law and the prophets. And uh, you're going to see, he's also going to reference it as commandments. So you know that Jesus didn't have the same kind of Bible that we have. We know that he's living out the Gospels right now. This is Matthew Uh, One of the disciples of Christ, eyewitness account. We have Mark, Luke, and John. Luke was a historian. He researched an account. So the Gospels are being lived out. They haven't even been written yet. The Apostle Paul is still working his way up the ladder of uh, Pharisaical, the Pharisaical hierarchy to be one of the, one of the Pharisees of the Pharisees, he called himself. He's still in process. 
he totally rejects the reality of, no doubt, someone that he heard at the feet of Gamaliel. He must have heard there was this prophet Jesus talking. He hasn't had his road to Damascus conversion experience, so he hasn't written any of the epistles. The disciples have not um, really, they're gathering around Christ right now. He's teaching them, but they haven't gone off and planted churches and, and ministered and then written letters to those churches that were then, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, um, brought together into this package of 66 books that we have. So what did our Lord Jesus have that he would call his Bible? He had Moses and the prophets. So Jesus would have had the Ten Commandments and then the surrounding um, amplification of the, of the commands and what it means, the, the law that God gave Moses, the Pentateuch, he would have understood it and known it and read it, probably memorized portions of it. He would have had the prophets, Jeremiah, Daniel, Ezekiel, Isaiah. And remember, Jesus quoted out of Isaiah when he was at the temple when he said, today scripture is fulfilled in your sight. All the Pharisees hated that stuff. They were experts in the law. They were experts in the prophets. They memorized it. So what we think of as our Old Testament is really the Word of God to them. And it was their Bible. That's how you can think of it. What we use as the word Bible, it would be the law and then the prophets. The Psalms of David would have been something well known. And in fact, Jesus quoted from many of these books. Many of the passages, he referenced the Pentateuch. In his teaching, he referenced Psalms. And he referenced uh, different prophecies and proclamations of the prophets. And so in our passage today, when we read it, and he talks about the law or the prophets, he's going to say, it's widely accepted that when, when the phrase the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets is used, that that's our Old Testament. And we basically consider it a broad phrase to consider that this is the Old Testament scriptures. So the New Testament is yet to come. Christ hasn't been to the cross. He hasn't risen from the dead. This new church age and the presence of the Holy Spirit living in us hasn't started up yet. And so today, as Jesus bridges, because listen, we're listening in on the Sermon on the Mount, right? The people gathered, they haven't heard it before. They don't have it in their lap in written form. They're not able to read ahead. They don't know what's coming next. And Jesus is going to shake things up with the next passage starting next week. So some fascinating sermons on some of these things that Jesus is talking about that doesn't fit with the way the Pharisees have rewritten the law. You see, they made up their own rules. They know that under the law of Moses, for example, in the Ten Commandments, it'll say things like, uh, thou shalt... um, Thou shalt remember the Sabbath, right? Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. It's a holy day. So what the Pharisees were experts at, they really wanted to keep the Sabbath. And so they began to write books and preach sermons about what it really means to keep the Sabbath. And so they would, they had rules that they made up. They're not in the law of Moses. They end up missing the whole spirit of the law, but they made up rules, for example, how many pounds something could be that you could pick up on the Sabbath and not call it work. They made up rules about how many steps you could travel in a town so many di- such a distance from, a, from the nearest temple, how many steps away from that you could get on a Sabbath day and not consider it more than a Sabbath day journey. 
Uh, they, they even had down how many letters you could write with an ink quill and how many, how many times you could dip your pen in an inkwell. Otherwise, it might be considered work. And they made up all these rules, and what you're going to have is you have Jesus coming in and, and just destroying their man-made rules. Jesus has a way of upsetting people, doesn't he? Sometimes we make up what we really believe about the Bible. You know that? The Pharisees did. They just made this stuff up. And then they really believed it. And in fact, they believed what they believed more than what Moses taught. And I'll show you a little more about that in a minute. Let's read our text now and get with it here. Because what we want to see after we read the text is we want to see seven truths about the Word of God straight from the mouth of Jesus. Seven truths about the Word of God straight from the mouth of Jesus. Here we go. Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus is teaching... Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. The first thing I want you to see is that the word of God is a durable word. Jesus is talking about his copy of the Bible He's holding it up and he wants them to think clearly about what they have as a word of God, these Old Testament scriptures and what they have and what they know. And he's affirming it. And the first thing he does is is remark that he's not there to abolish it. It, number one, is a durable word. The word of God is durable. Look what he says. Do not think that I have come to abolish. I'm not coming to do away with anything. It's not going anywhere. It's a durable word. It's going to stay here. It's an enduring word. We're not going to change anything. Now, why did he say that? Let's think about this for just a minute. Why is Jesus, as he segues to the next portion of the Sermon on the Mount, after he's finished up the Beatitudes section, Reminded them that when you live out these Beatitudes, you cannot help but be salt and light. Why then is he emphasizing all of a sudden that he's not come to abolish the Old Testament? Well, let me tell you why I think. Flip over to chapter 12, verse 1, for example. Let me show you how Jesus, according to the Pharisees, and I think he is ever aware of the Pharisees listening in as he teaches his disciples. And they are critical of how he lives out the law and the prophets. They say that he doesn't obey the scripture. They say that he's changing things. They know that he's proclaiming himself to be the Messiah. And as a Messiah, is he going to come and is he going to just wipe out the Old Testament and the prophets and reteach everything himself? What's he doing here? Well, look at 12.1. And I'm not 100% certain of the chronology here. I suspect that this hasn't happened yet. But it is possible that this experience, these experiences are not all in exact chronological order. But in chapter 12, verse 1, it typifies an occurrence in the day of our Lord Jesus, which the Pharisees criticized. Look what it says. 
at that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. In other words, how come you don't keep the Sabbath laws? You're disobeying Scripture. Okay, you can hold your finger there for just a minute, but just picture what happened. So as they're walking along, Jesus and his disciples, it's a Sabbath. And they're walking on the Sabbath, traveling, and one of them, they're hungry. And so one of them, you've done this before, maybe you reach out and you grab a piece of grass that has a grain head and you pull on it and it all peels off right in your hand. And so here's fields of grain and they take their hand as they're walking and maybe it's some kind of a wheat grain head, you know, and it's dry enough that when they pull on it, all the kernels fall into their hand, even as they walk. And then I've done this before on the farm. You rub them in your hand and you get the get the husks to fall off the grain, and then you blow it, and all the husks blow away, and you got all the grain in your hand. You winnow it, and then you pop it in your mouth. So that's what they're doing. They're walking along, and they let their hand drag up the stem, just drag up the stem of the wheat stalk, pull off the grains, rub it out, blow it off, chuck it in their mouth, and the Pharisees say, you're harvesting grain. You're harvesting grain. You can't do that. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. What are you doing? Rewriting the law? Chapter 15, another illustration. Look at chapter 15. Same kind of thing. And I suspect that we only have limited accounts in the life of Christ where these kinds of things took place. After all, we're told in the Gospels that if everything that Jesus did were written, not even the whole world could contain the books. Chapter 15, verse 1, Then the Pharisees and the scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? You see, in their mind, the tradition of the elders was equated with the law of Moses. It's like, we're the experts in the law. We know how it's supposed to be lived out. And you're bending it. You're changing it. He goes on to say, Why do your disciples... Break the tradition of the elders, for they do not wash their hands when they eat. And we don't need to read any more. Go back to chapter 5 because we must hurry along. But that's the idea. Jesus wasn't making his disciples. He wasn't enforcing some of the Pharisees' interpretation of the law with his disciples. And it really, really upset him. And so he's being accused of changing the law or disregarding the law and the prophets. And Jesus is saying, I'm not here to abolish the law at all. Now, in chapter 5, I want you to follow with your eyes. Look at verse 21. You see, Jesus knows what's coming next. And this is where we'll be next week. We'll pick it up with verse 20 and 21. On anger. Jesus is going now to visit in the, in the next portion of his message on the Sermon on the Mount that's coming, and the listeners have no idea that it's coming, he's going to introduce six different sections, six different statements that he's going to make, and he's going to introduce it like this. You have heard that it was said of those of old. You have heard that it was said. In other words, this is what you've heard that the law teaches. This is what the law and the prophets taught. Look at verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You see, verse 21 was, you have heard that it was said, and he quotes one of the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder. Look at verse 31. It is also said, whoever divorces his wife, and he goes on, and he's quoting what was passed on as law. 
Verse 33, again you have heard it said, you shall not swear falsely. You shall not bear false witness. We know that's from the law. And Jesus is going to check, he's going to check off these points. You've heard it said, and he quotes from the law. Look at verse 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Look at verse 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy, and so forth. You see, some of this stuff is he's going to quote the Pharisees with their, with their misinterpretation and their widely accepted erroneous views of what they, how they have corrupted the law of Moses. And so Jesus wants to set the stage for what's coming in the Sermon on the Mount, and he wants them to understand what he believes about his Bible. He wants them to understand at least seven truths about the Bible straight from his mouth. The first one, it is a durable word. It's an enduring word, and I'm not here to abolish it. I'm not here to change it. Secondly, it's a credible word. It's a credible word. Look what Jesus says in verse 17. We're now back in Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. So I haven't come to rewrite the Bible. I have not come, he says it again, to abolish them. Now look what he says. But I have come to fulfill them. I want you to see that as Jesus views the Old Testament, he sees himself as completely in his ministry compatible with the Old Testament's teachings of the law and the prophets. And so it lends nothing but credibility to the Old Testament. As Jesus teaches, he's going to lend credibility even to the Scriptures. They stand alone, and in their own way, the Old Testament law and the prophets are complete. But Jesus is going to fulfill them. The word fulfill can be understood as complete, but it's not like they were less than written well. It's the perfect law. The psalmist talked about that. Jeremiah talks about it. How does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament? What is it in Jesus' ministry in that he can say, I have not come to abolish this, and in fact, I have come to complete it, to fulfill it, to to just pad it out, to make it come to life. I'm going to bring color to it. I'm going to show you what it's really all about. I think there's a number of ways. I like to comment briefly that as Jesus says, my ministry fits perfectly with the Old Testament. My ministry fits perfectly with the prophecies of the Old Testament. And it only lends credibility to the Old Testament for Jesus to believe it. Jesus is going to quote, we're going to see in Matthew, where Jesus quotes Genesis He quotes the law of Moses. He quotes the Psalms. He quotes the prophets. He believes in Jonah. He believed that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a whale. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus believed that Jonah... I said whale. I meant fish. If Jesus spent three days in the belly of a fish, and he... Excuse me. If Jesus believed that Jonah spent three days in the belly of a fish, don't you think you ought to believe that? That's not folklore. And Jesus believed that Noah was on the ark and saved the world, and he says so in Matthew 25. Jesus believed in a universal flood. Jesus believed that only Noah was spared from the flood by the ark, coming in through the narrow way, the only door in the side of the ark. If he believed in a universal flood, if he believed the ark was real, if he believed that Noah was real, don't you think we should believe that? See, it only lends credibility. But let me suggest some ways that Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets. Number one, I want you to see that he's the subject 
of the Old Testament. How does Jesus fulfill the law and the prophets? Number one, he is the subject of all of their writing. He's their subject. In every book, in every story, on all points, it's all about Jesus. It's all about the coming Messiah. It's all about God's program to deliver people from their sin through His Son, the Lord Jesus. He's the subject. A few years ago, and I didn't check how long ago, maybe 20, 25 years ago already, a father-son duo named Aaron Jeffrey had a song that was a pretty big hit. You still hear it today. And it's called, He Is. And this song was just them going, starting at Genesis and going all the way through Revelation saying who Jesus is in these books. It's a good example to remind us of how Jesus is the subject of the story of the Old Testament. How does he fulfill it? He's the subject. Let me read the lyrics of Aaron Jeffrey's song, He Is. In Genesis, he's the breath of life. Exodus, the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. Numbers, the fire by night. Deuteronomy, he's Moses' voice. In Joshua, he's salvation's choice. Judges, lawgiver. In Ruth, the kinsman redeemer. First and second Samuel, our trusted prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's sovereign. Ezra, true and faithful scribe. Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken walls and lives. In Esther, he's Mordecai's courage. In Job, the timeless redeemer. In Psalms, he's our morning song. In Proverbs, wisdom's cry. Ecclesiastes, the time and season. In the Song of Solomon, he's the lover's dream. He is, he is, he is. In Isaiah, he's Prince of Peace. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. In Lamentations, He's the cry for Israel. Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, the stranger in the fire. In Hosea, he is forever faithful. In Joel, he's the Spirit's power. In Amos, he's the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he's the Lord our Savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, the promise of peace. In Nahum, he's our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he's pleading for revival. In Haggai, he restores a lost heritage. In Zechariah, our fountain. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness rising with healing in his wings. He is, he is, he is. He's the subject. That's who he is. He's the whole subject of the book, of the law. How does he fulfill it? He's the subject. Secondly, I want you to see, not only is he the subject of the Old Testament, but number two, he fulfills it in that he is the shadow in the Old Testament. He's the shadow in the Old Testament. When we talk about a foreshadowing in the Old Testament, we're talking about what, we, what theologians call types. That in the Old Testament, there are many illustrations of who Jesus is. There are many illustrations of God's coming plan of salvation. And in fact, the more you study, the more you realize that the Old Testament, it's just seeded with it. It's just filled with a foreshadowing. The shadow in the Old Testament is a shadow of the coming Messiah. Let me give you an example. We, we must hurry, but think about some very familiar stories, and there are dozens and dozens of them, including one that I just, just referenced, the Ark in the flood and the narrow door. Who's our door to salvation? You see, the ark itself is, is really a type of Christ. It's a type of salvation in Christ. But how about Genesis 22? You can picture Abraham with the killing knife, with his son of promise, Isaac, through whom this old man, whose body was as good as dead and he thought he couldn't have children, has a son named Isaac through whom God is going to give him a, 
a lineage that is numberless, beyond the stars of the sky, beyond the sand of the seashore. And he has him up on Mount Moriah. There he said he went to worship. He has Isaac tied up with ropes. He has the wood prepared. He's going to offer his own son because it was a direct command from God. Abraham, take your son, your only son. That has a ring to it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Abraham, take your only son, the only son of promise he had, put him on an altar, put a knife in his chest, and offer him to me as as a sacrifice, a yielding over, completely giving to me the most valuable possession of your life. And there Abraham is in full obedience. We find out in the New Testament in Hebrews 11 that that Abraham was going to do it. And he believed by faith that God would just raise him from the dead because he totally, absolutely believed that through Isaac, grandchildren would be born. So for that to happen, he would have to be alive. And for him to be alive, after he plunged the killing knife in his chest, he was going to have to be raised from the dead. And at the last minute, the angel of the Lord, as it were, grabs Abraham's arm and says, Abraham, Abraham, stop. I believe your faith has saved you. And all of a sudden, bah, 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 what's over in the bushes? What's caught in the, in, the, in the thicket? A ram by the horns. Okay, now here's an example that I want you to understand. And the Old Testament is full of this stuff. Abraham goes over, unties Isaac, gets the ram out of the thickets, brings him up on the altar, puts the killing knife to him, and spills his blood. Because apart from the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Who does the ram look like? That shadow of that lamb cast upon that altar on Mount Moriah leads us right to the cross, doesn't it? And so we have story after story in the Old Testament of how Jesus is the shadow in the Old Testament. One more that I'll reference quickly that you'll be able to picture. Do you remember when Moses was leading the children of Israel out of Egypt and bondage and captivity into the promised land? And then God said, Moses, command your people to put the blood of the Passover lamb on their doorposts and on the sides of their doors. And if they don't, God's death angel was going to visit the camp and the firstborn of every living creature, of men and of animals and cattle, all of them. I know that cattle are animals, but all animals and people, the firstborn, parakeets, hogs, whatever they had. If it's the firstborn, the death angel is going to get it. But among the Israelites and God's people, the death angel did what? He passed over. Hence the name, the Passover celebration. He has passed over what? He has passed over the sin of my household. He has passed over condemning my house. Because even in the Old Testament, and in fact, if you wanted a theme for the Old Testament, it is that the wages of sin is death. But with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, the death angel comes through the community and every household has the blood on the posts, on the doorpost. All is well and they sleep quietly inside while the wailing of the Egyptians starts up as they discover a mom or a dad or a brother or a sister or a favorite calf. Whatever's considered the firstborn, they're all dead because sin has killed them and there's no cover. Listen, Whose blood is it that washes us white as snow? Whose blood is it that we identify with so that the death angel will pass over us? It's 
nothing more than the blood of Christ. You see the foreshadowing in the Old Testament. He's the shadow. So when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the Old Testament, I've come to be the living reality of the Old Testament. And I want to tell you, perhaps at no moment was Jesus more living out the law of the Old Testament when death came upon him on the cross. The Old Testament is a book of death. The Old Testament is a book of of blood being shed. And when Jesus Christ goes to the cross, spreads out his arms like a sacrificial lamb, all right, he spreads out his arms and dies for us in our place as a substitute. That's a third way. He's the substitutionary sacrifice of the Old Testament. Isaiah said, all we like sheep have gone astray. We all by our iniquities have sinned and offended God. We've been gone far astray, but the Lord laid on Him. Who's Him? In Isaiah, Him is a foreshadowing of Christ. And the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity, the sin of us all. When is Jesus living out the Old Testament in all of its reality more than when the sin of the world is upon Him and He dies on the cross for it? You see Jesus fulfilling the Old Testament that... Apart from the remission of sin, there is no... Apart from the the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. There it is. So how does Jesus fulfill the Old Testament, the law and the prophets? He's the subject of the Old Testament. He's the shadow in the Old Testament. He's the substitutionary sacrifice modeled in the Old Testament. And so forth and on. He's the seed of David. All the story of Israel in the Old Testament is about a promised coming king. And it's Jesus who will sit on his throne forever and ever. He's the seed of David. There are many, many ways that Jesus lives it out. Well, there it is. Jesus says that the Old Testament is very durable. It's very credible. Let's just glance quickly and click this off. Let me show you. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. That's the Old Testament law and prophets. For truly, verse 18, I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. What we see here is that the Word of God is indestructible. It's indestructible. You see, in the coming kingdom, the physical coming kingdom of God, when the new heavens and the new earth appear, and this old heavens and old earth evaporate and are changed, there will no longer be the same need for this word. Now, in many ways, this is an eternal word, and it endures forever. But this word, he says, notice what he says, I say unto you, until heaven and earth pass away. So that's at least our lifetime, until it all happens, maybe in front of us. Not an iota or a dot will pass away from the law until it's all accomplished. It's indestructible. As long as we're in this physical world, it is an indestructible word. It's going to happen exactly the way he said it. You know what an iota is? What a dot is? The King James used to say jot and tittle. For all practical purposes, in the Hebrew language, it is the most minute, smallest particle of grammatical punctuation. But a little dot next to a letter can change the meaning of that letter. A little mark makes it a breath mark. And it changes the way you would say that word or say that letter. It brings ramification to it. And so Jesus is saying, if it were English, we would say there's not one comma or apostrophe or period that's even going to go away. It is completely reliable, it is. 
That's my fourth point. It's reliable because look what he says in verse 18. Not a dot or an iota will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. You can count on it. It's a reliable word. The word of God is reliable. Fifth thing I want to say as we unfold our text here and quickly come to conclusion is that you see that Jesus teaches that it's a doable word. It's doable. You're supposed to live it out. It's a livable word. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, verse 19, and there it is, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice, first of all, that this word is doable. It's livable. I want you to see that you're able to live it out. You're to do this word. Fifthly, I want you to see that it's a teachable word. It's a word that's to be taught, but this one comes with a warning. If anybody teaches this word, specifically in our context, the Old Testament law and the prophets, if anybody teaches that and you relax it or say, it doesn't matter, don't worry about that part of the Bible, that you're going to be called least in the kingdom. You know people that disregard the word of God to fit their lifestyle? Do you know people that just blow off parts of the Word of God? But it's, um, it's totally doable. We're expected to live it out. But notice this warning. He relaxes it. If you relax it, you're least in the kingdom. But then if you teach those to obey it, you will be called great. You want to be called great? LeBron James is great. Right? The blue softball team is great. You want to be great? I'll tell you who's great. Ann Vokacher is great. She's going to teach day camp in a week. She's going to teach boys and girls and transfer truth that is teachable and livable to the next generation. And you teach it, and you teach it accurately, and God will call you great in His kingdom. I like that. Makes it pretty serious, doesn't it, to teach boys and girls about Jesus. It makes it one of the most important things about us to transfer truth to the next generation and teach them not to relax it. Don't. This is all good stuff. You better live it out. You better study it. Better learn how to live it. And those who do that faithfully, you will be great. Have you ever met the great Joellen Toothman at Fellowship Bible Church? She's great. She's great. These people are great. The great Jonathan Marceau is teaching junior church right now. Hopefully he's still teaching for a while. <laughs> Hopefully he's teaching it, teaching him not to relax anything. This does bring up a question, and though we must finish, I think it's very important. Okay, so here's what curious minds want to know. All right, if I'm supposed to not relax any part of the law or the prophets, that's what Jesus is specifically talking about here, but I am to teach people to obey it, how come, Pastor Van, there's parts of the Old Testament that we seem to disregard here at Fellowship Bible Church and other parts that we're very concerned about keeping? And by the way, this is an incredibly relevant, relevant point because, for example, as homosexuality in, encroaches upon the church in evangelical homosexuality, one of the arguments that they will say is, you can't say that God condemns homosexuality in the Old Testament because you mix threads in your clothing. 
You see, in part of Levitical law, God said to the Israelites not to mix the threads of different kinds of material in their clothing. So why do you care about who sleeps with who, and then you don't care about which threads? How come you're not keeping the whole law? Nah, 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 nah. All right? So here's the thing. And, and, and this is a whole message in itself, but it, this will help your thinking. The law really divides itself into three parts. Okay, listen closely and I'll go quickly. The law divides itself into three parts. You could take a notebook and divide three panels on your paper and go through the Old Testament and you could divide all of the commands into three parts. It will either be God's moral law, it will either be ceremonial law, or it will be judicial law. Let me explain the difference. Moral law is easy for us to understand. It stems from the very character of the holiness of God. So when God condemned things and he said it's an abomination and don't do it and it was part of his moral law, guess what? All of the moral law of the Old Testament is still the moral law of the New Testament and it's all retaught in the New Testament. But there was another kind of law that was given with, by Moses and that's why you almost never have your devotions in Leviticus. It's because a lot of it's judicial and ceremonial law because who were God's people in the Old Testament? Who was God dealing with? You have to admit those were different times because he would put the sword to people. He doesn't do that anymore. His people could take their sword and kill their pagan neighbors. What's that all about? God was in that dispensation dealing with Israel as his own people. And so he gave them judicial laws as to how to operate and live in separation from their pagan neighbors. That's why he told them how to cut their hair what kind of meat to eat, what kind of meat not to eat, whether to have tattoos, whether not to have tattoos, things like that, whether to weave their thread together. Listen, the judicial law of the Old Testament was specifically for Israel at a specific time, and it is not taught or retaught in the New Testament. So we don't worry about the judicial law so much. Ceremonial law is all of the sacrifices. You know we don't have sacrifices here. We don't kill sheep, lamb, goats, doves, pigeons, because that's part of the ceremonial law. And that was all part of the foreshadowing. That was all part of putting in their minds that blood has to flow and that one day the perfect lamb would go to the cross. And that's not retaught in the New Testament either. The moral law is the, 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 the ceremonial and judicial law is specific for Israel at a specific time and place. That is a super huge under-teaching of all of that, but hopefully it helps you kind of divide it in your mind and gives you a glimpse of why we teach the way we teach. It's a durable law. It's a credible law. It's an indestructible law. It's a reliable law. It's doable. It's teachable. And notice that it's commendable. He ends with saying, and and... We already kind of emphasized this, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of God. You will be commended for teaching and obeying this word. Three words of application. Number one, when you realize what Jesus thought and how he fulfilled and the focus he put on his Bible, lesson number one for us today is it, it's time for us to stop being bored by our Bibles. This is an incredible word. If every jot and every tittle, every iota matters, then you better pay attention to your Bible. Jesus wasn't bored by his Bible. Jesus lived it out and fulfilled it. I, I want to illustrate this just quickly. I love trees. 
My dad put a love of lumber in me. And somewhere along the line, my brother bought me a book about identifying trees. And I know a little bit about them. And this book tells a lot about them. And I like to walk my dog and look at the trees and sort of identify them. And half of them I kind of know and some of them I don't. And, and I imagine myself to know more than I really know about trees. And I have this great book on my shelf. And I think to myself as I look at the trees, I love trees and I love learning about trees. I really need to study my tree book. But let me tell you something about this book. It's a little bit boring. <laughs> and it's got some words in it that are in Latin and I don't understand them. You know, I love to look at Jesus. I love to think about God. And I love to know him. And I imagine myself that I really know a lot about him. And I think I really ought to study the book on Jesus. But then when I open it sometimes, there's no pictures. (laughs) And it's a little bit boring sometimes. You understand what I'm saying? As Jesus talked about his Bible, he's not talking like it's a boring book. It's time to stop being bored by our Bibles. Number two, it's time for us to stop rewriting our Bibles. It's time for us to stop rewriting our Bibles. If Jesus believed in a flood, and if Jesus believed in Jonah, then we better too. And we live in a day and an age where people don't like that stuff. And they think you're barefoot, toothless, pregnant in West Virginia if you believe there really was a flood. There really was a fish that swallowed a man. That that's all some kind of, some kind of allegory. Jesus didn't think it was an allegory. Jesus believed his Bible. We ought to believe his Bible too. Thirdly, let's redouble our efforts to teach the Bibles to boys and girls. Let's redouble our efforts. Don't you think, don't you think that Fellowship Bible Church with all of its resources ought to be hitting grand slam home runs in teaching boys and girls and the next generation about the Bible? I don't know if we are. Jesus said, If you teach anyone to follow this and obey it accurately, you're great. You want to be a great church? Then let's teach the Bible accurately. Amen? Let's bow in prayer. Uh, Father, we've tried to wrap wrap our minds around uh, some very important concepts. And so in the weeks ahead, should you tarry, continue to grow us and teach us through this, that we would really get a handle on who Jesus is and how he's teaching and what the scriptures contain. Father, would you help us to see Jesus as our sacrificial lamb, the one who substituted in for us? Would you tweak our hearts today? Call people to yourself. Help us to realize that we cannot pay the price for our own sin. We can't keep the law. And only Jesus kept the law completely. And that's another way he fulfilled it, by keeping it completely. And that he'll transfer that righteousness over to us if we come to the cross. Would you please show us these things, reveal them to us. Thank you, Lord, for how your blood of your son paid the price for all of our sin on the cross. We are so grateful. Commit ourselves to you for another week. Guide and direct our paths, I pray in Jesus' name.